0: Hey out there rock and rollers, welcome to the 60th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in northwest central London, just off historic Abbey Road. We want to thank everybody for listening to Exile on Main Street Review, coming up on 50 Years for Exile. That was our show last week, and we got some nice comments on that. We appreciate it. We think it's the high watermark for the Stones, and we are huge Rolling Stones fans, so it means a lot to us. But it kind of brings up the age-old debate. Back in the day, it was always the question, are you a Beatles fan or a Stones fan? They kind of pitted each other against each other in the press, even though basically they were colleagues and friends. But... You could hear Keith Richards talk about how sometimes they would know, oh, the Beatles have their new single coming out next week. All right, well, we'll wait a couple of weeks after that before we put out our new single. Talk about it as kind of a double act throughout the 60s. They were the two big ones who really survived. There are other bands, obviously, who did well and were influential and maybe even are still around to this day, maybe one or two, but none of them had the influence that the Beatles and the Stones did. Now, Jackson and I were not enormous Beatles fans growing up, We liked the Beatles, sure, and I had a couple of Beatles records, but it just wasn't who I wanted to listen to all the time. In some ways, they were a little elementary in in that I used to love Dr. Seuss, but I don't listen, I don't read him anymore, right? They were just such a bedrock foundation, learning your ABCs. You have to like and understand some of the Beatles music if you're going to like rock and roll. But our tastes evolved past the Beatles, and we're big Stones fans. But when the Get Back documentary came out, I was intrigued by it, as were millions and millions of other people around the world, and if you've seen this, God, it's an amazing piece of film. Basically, the premise is, the Beatles had already made the White Album a couple months before, it was all over the charts. Now their idea was, they had not played live since 66, but they did Hey Jude on a TV show with a bunch of kids in a studio, and they kind of had fun playing it live and, and having a bit of an audience around them, so the idea was, let's... In the first two and a half weeks of 1969, let's write 14 songs. Why 14? I guess most of their albums had 14 songs. Let's write these 14 songs and we'll record that for an album and we'll play it live as a TV special and we'll get a documentary out of making all this pretty ambitious project. So they went to Twickenham Studios, but they hadn't been playing together for a while. They'd always been tracking for the last couple years, so the idea of playing it all live together at once was ambitious, especially given the way they'd been recording. For the last couple years and had not been playing live at all. And so Michael Lindsey Hogg made the film, shot over 150 hours of film for this, was always pushing to do more to make sure we got that location to do the live show because that was the payoff for him and his film. It didn't really work out that way as far as an exotic location, but we did get the iconic Beatles last concert on the top of Apple Studios on Savile Row. That's the payoff at the end. It was an amazing, lots of great cast of characters. Of course, George Martin is around, Glenn Johns is around. You see a little bit of Alan Parsons running tape in there. Of course, the ladies in their lives were all there. With, of course, Yoko just not being farther than three inches away from John. We'll talk more about her later. Before we get into the show, I just want to remind you that you can reach out to us on Twitter at Ugly underscore Werewolf and at ActionJack72, and you can see all past episodes at www.UglyAmericanWerewolf.Libsyn.com. We are joined this week by our friend Neil from Def Lep Pod. Neil's a great guy, and he's also a native Liverpudlian. Now, he, like us, was never an enormous Beatles fan. He is obviously a big Def Leppard fan, as his Def Leppard Pod. is a fantastic podcast, and I suggest you go check that out. But being someone who grew up in Liverpool, surrounded by ongoing Beatlemania his whole life, probably having old men in pubs telling him how great the Beatles were since he was a wee lad we thought he'd be a great guest to have on to kind of share what we learned in this documentary how we felt about the beatles and interacted with their music growing up and just have a great conversation and with neil it always is we had a lot of fun doing this and i think that shows in the show we really hope you like it so without further ado you got the wolf action jackson and neil from Def Lep pod reviewing the beatles get back here on the wolf Welcome back to the show. You know, we had a we had a blast having you on the last time. And I we recently did our, uh, you know, our kind of end of year, our best of 2021 I show. I appreciate that. And it was easy when yes. we ranked the shows. It was obvious to both of us that we had the most fun talking with you. I mean, someone who we never talked with. It's like, man, this guy loves, you know, the rock music the same way we do, you know. And Jackson, you know, look, I'm the one who's like, Leading everybody, trying to get everybody excited. Jackson's kind of like the more chill. Yeah, man, whatever. But anytime we have a, a guest on, we'll have a recap afterwards, you know. And sometimes it'll be recorded for the show. And sometimes we'll be like, oh, yeah, he was cool. Or, oh, yeah, we, we should have talked about this. he could like, oh, man, that was fun. That was so awesome,
3: dude. Like, that, <laughs> that was a blast. I could only reciprocate the sentiments. It was exactly the same for me. So, cool. That's why I'm more than happy to come on to talk about a band that I never really liked. But I, lo- I love, I love, though the uh,
0: documentary so well right yeah and that's that's the thing i mean i wouldn't say we don't like the beatles being jackson it's the beatles right you know i mean the beatles are kind of like your abcs and you know it's like i i still like dr seuss i just don't read him anymore you know um love me do is almost like a nursery rhyme now you know it's it's not exactly groundbreaking or, or cutting edge but it's like we wouldn't have all this other stuff that we love without the Beatles, obviously. But but yeah, Jax and I are more Stones fans. We, we went that route. That's just who we are. But not only because we love talking to you, we figure, well, as someone who is from Liverpool, where they must just shove the Beatles down your throat from birth... I wanted to get your take on it. You know what I mean? Getting the English perspective, I think, is what made our show so much fun the last time. So, hey, none of us are huge fans, but we all love the documentary. We we all owe the Beatles a big debt of gratitude. So I wanted to hear, you know, how how, growing up, what was it like as far as you have friends who were way into them? We were like, Jesus, what's wrong with those people? Was it your parents who were into them? Like, what was the story?
3: Well, what's interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it more later, is Get Back documentary has fairly significantly changed my view on the Beatles. Mm, interesting. Um, and so it's actually had quite, I wouldn't say profound effect, that sounds too much, but it's had actually quite a big effect in terms of what I've been listening to over the last few weeks, put it that way.
0: Cool. Good to know. Yeah, I like that. What about you, Jackson? Jackson's actually in Texas Right now, instead of on the East Coast. So we're, we're spread out a little further than we usually are
2: this week. So, yeehaw. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, never, I never really listened to the Beatles growing up. My parents, it, I think we had, we may have had Revolver somewhere in the house. Never really listened to it. Uh, like you were talking about before, I was always a Stones guy. And it was, it, the Beatles were, it was almost too easy. Oh, I like the Beatles. Everybody likes the Beatles. Duh. <laughs>
0: right. But...
2: And then I think it was – I remember – when did that number ones come out with the red cover?
0: It's after we were in college. I mean, Yeah, yeah. so it
2: was probably like mid-2000s maybe. And I was going on a road trip and they had a big – they had a standalone display of it. It was a Target or something. And I said, you know what? Yeah, pick that up. I mean you know every song on there. And the voice in the back of my head said, you're better than that. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. If you want to listen to the Beatles, listen to the whole thing. Listen Don't the others, do the, yeah. the hit. And I just started working it backwards from there. And I'm like, yeah, these guys were so far ahead of everyone else as far as like musicianship, maybe not musicianship, but as far as like writing songs and just the prolific output. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they went from this boy band to this, you know, radical, psychedelic, over the top group of guys. I just gave me a much better appreciation for them. And I actually talked to a guy whose his daughter was maybe 20 ish and he had a, she had a boyfriend and he was like, yeah, I was trying to talk to him about the Beatles and he wouldn't, he doesn't listen to them. I said, check back in 10 years, check back in 10 years. And I guarantee you, he'll have a much better appreciation. So that was my kind of journey into it, just getting involved with them. But yeah, once you get into it, it wow, it's just, it's amazing.
0: Yeah. And then I, I guess I kind of found them to a degree in high school, you know, once I started buying CDs, the expense of CDs made it. I can't just take a chance on CDs. Maybe I could take a chance on a cassette. But CDs, which were $15 American back then, that's like $40 today. As a teenager, I don't have that money. So if I'm going to get something, I got to know it's going to be something I'm going to want for years, right? So. Right. I mean, I I think I got the White Album as one of my first 10 or 20, one of the 24 million people in America to buy the White (laughs) Album over the years. And, of course, that has diverse Beatles stuff on it. That doesn't just have Love Me Do and I Want to Hold Your Hand. It's got not only the compositions that Paul and John wrote later, but suddenly George has a little more something to say, you know. And they let Eric Clapton do a little ghost guitar work on there and Ringo gets a song you know so it's like broadening their horizons and of course I had Sergeant Peppers because it was kind of like well you gotta have that one I'll tell you what really got me into him was Cinemax is part of HBO Neil Cinemax is kind of a cable TV network that like if it's a little too raunchy or it's not family friendly enough for HBO they stick it on Cinemax and they had help the the movie help on Cinemax one night and I recorded it Yeah, I I recorded it on VHS cassette along with the Jimi Hendrix movie afterwards, and I watched that thing over and over again and saw them as, yes, they made this great music, but they're also kind of comedians. They they didn't take themselves that seriously, right? They would take the piss out of themselves as quickly as they would anyone else. So, they're like, okay, well, they're fun and all. It's just... Help, yeah, great songs on there, but at that point, I was already I was into Rush and Van Halen and Led Zeppelin, and the Beatles were just not hard enough for
3: me. It's interesting what Action said as well, and I think it's spot on in terms of if you take from say 1962, which is their first single, to 1969, which is the year that Get Back is from and Mm -hmm. the Abbey Road album and uh, Let It Be album. I mean, it's quite difficult when you think about those seven years. Which Beatles are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to have a very different conversation with you about what I think about post Revolver and afterwards Beatles right. to the Beatles before Revolver, and especially that early stuff in like you know 62, 63. Like, I want to hold your hand and things like that. I've got no real interest in that. Right. Or maybe, maybe from Rubber Soul, um, possibly. Mm-hmm. Then I'm starting to think, okay, this is a little bit more, I'm a little bit more interested in, I think sonically it changes then as well, because I don't know what you think, but I don't know if it's chord and things. so there's something about that early 60s sound that I find it quite difficult to connect to, where it's just, it just sounds really old. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's, it's like in the same way, I don't listen to, like, Glenn Miller. It just sounds old. Right. But then something happens around mid-60s, I don't know where it is, where the music starts sounding more contemporary, what we could consider modern rock music and that might be terribly sort of shallow on my part in terms of letting that bother me but it just becomes much more accessible and easier on the ear to me sonically once you get to sort of around like 1966.
0: I think I'm with you there and even the Stones their early stuff you know if I hear satisfaction on the radio I might change the channel whereas you know 30, 40 years ago, I'm like, oh, it's the Stones, turn it up, you know. So yeah, no, you're right, some of that early 60s, something happened, whether it was they finally got with Bob Dylan and started to think about how they could change it, or the Beach Boys eventually did Pet Sounds, like, wow, they're just a bunch of surfer dudes, and then they made this amazing thing, we need to up our game. Plus, I do think that once they decided to go off the road in 66, you know, after they had the... The deal in Manila with Imelda Marcos. They had the deal in the south of the USA with the KKK burning their records and the The whole the Beatles are bigger than Jesus Christ thing doesn't go over with the Christian population in America. They're like, why do we even want a tour? They they don't listen to us. They scream the whole time. They can't hear us. We can't hear us. Traveling is a nightmare because they chase the plane and the car and everything else. Let's just stay home and sell records that way. And then they didn't have to worry about how do we play this live? They could just expand and do all sorts of different soundscapes and use different instruments to create something They don't have to worry about. We don't have to play it live. We're just going to put it on a record and stick it out there.
2: Well, and then you kind of get into the whole them working with George Martin and how he. Because I remember Lennon was saying something about how you know I want to have a I want to have a radio playing in the back. I want to have a live radio feed or something. And Martin's like, all right, cool. Give me you know give me twenty minutes and I'll figure out how to make that work. You know they had these ideas, but then once they got they once they really started to get into the studio wizardry, they could make it. All the things in their mind actually come come together and once they got into Mm multi-tracking and they really embrace the let's see what we can really do once they abandon the idea of ever playing that stuff live again. Now it can be whatever. We We can track it a zillion times, backwards, forwards, add layers
3: to it, whatever you want to do. And I think that's when they really took off to the stuff that we like. What's really interesting about Get Back as well, that, that that whole idea of we don't want to tour anymore; we'll spend more time in a studio. I've always known about that because I, I've, you know, I hear the stories about you know Ringo Starr putting his symbols almost vertically because he thought he might like someone might try and assassinate him, and, <laughs> and it was too noisy and and, 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 and all of this stuff. I like they were actually sort of scared of touring almost. Again. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I think you see the hangover for that in Get Back, which is what beginning in 1969 where like George Harrison just doesn't want to do anything or go anywhere ever Mm -hmm. and you can really see how that experience like in 63, 64, 65, 66 all that touring and it's still there with them in 69, where most of them, with the exception of Paul McCartney, which we'll probably come to, just seem completely jaded and just like never, ever want to leave England ever, never mind leave England again. They don't want to leave their big country house just right. outside of London or wherever it is. They live in. You can really just see them just like, thinking, I just don't need to see the world again or the States or, or wherever. And it, it, that's all still there in 1969. It's like really interesting to actually see that on the screen for the first time something that you've only really read about and actually see evidence of it almost
2: well that was one of the things that really struck me too when when they were talking about um what they were going to do for the final product on get back okay so we're going to make these songs and then we're going to do what tv show blah, blah blah and and michael keeps pushing the idea of okay so what, what are we going to do what are we going to do and, Joy, and Paul says, well, "Ringo doesn't want to go anywhere, so I don't think we don't think we're going to go anywhere." Okay, dude, if you wanted to go somewhere, you'd have gone. So you were kind of using him. Ringo was the scapegoat too. But you're right; they were like, "Yeah, uh, we've already been everywhere. We're not going anywhere. We like it here, where it's safe and comfortable, and no, not not doing it." Yeah, and
0: Lindsey Hogg wanted to go to Libya, and I'm like, in today's world, going to Libya is the dumbest idea you know, I can think of. You know, it's. Like, let's go to the middle of Sudan, you know, like on the border of the war zone. What do you think? Now, the shots of the place, it looked amazing. I mean, it looked like someplace yeah. Pink Floyd would have, you know, played back in the 70s. You know, it was really cool. But again, it's like, do they sell a lot of records in Libya? You know, does that really make a lot of sense? I don't know. Not to mention, I don't know if Michael Lindsay Hogg is related to Dennis Eaton Hogg, who, who owned the... The the record company Spinal Tap was on those many years, but but it seems like they might have a relatively common, by the way.
2: Could, could have been not could as big,
0: been. not as big a thing over here. Spinal Tap, I, I think. I think bad news is a bigger deal over here than than Spinal Tap, as far as like bands on the road getting in trouble there, Neil. But you can educate us on that, maybe.
2: But but to me, that was one of the big takeaways, or one of the things that really stood out to me, especially at the beginning, was they were getting back together. They were kind of just starting to feel each other out again. You had them trying to feel their way out, and and Michael just hammering this concert. Okay, what are we going to do? What are we going? Okay, take it easy, buddy. You know we're we're trying to. We're just, okay, so let's talk about that. What are we mm-hmm. going to do? Uh, what are the plans? And it was like that. He had a mission to get this thing done, and they were like, we're not even sure we want to do this really. And so it was those two things of he was the business. I need to make this happen. And they were more the organic. Let's just float along here and see what we come up with.
0: Yeah, they hadn't played live in two or three years. They recorded together in the studio. I mean, look, the White Album came out in the fall of 68. It was on top of the charts while they were doing this, right? So, mm-hmm. but they did a lot of tracking and looping, and sometimes they would take stuff at their own homes and bring it in to Abbey Road or whatever. So the idea was like, we haven't played live. They did a TV special, Neil, when they did Hey Jude live with a bunch of kids all around him, I don't know if it was on ITV or what, but then they, you know, and then at the end, the kids kind of jumped on top of the risers or were sitting right next to him, And I don't think George liked that at all, but I think overall the band's like, hey, playing live is something we used to like. So instead of doing all this tracking and dubbing, why don't we write all new songs, we'll play them live, and we'll record that, and that'll be the album, and we'll do it in front of people, because that's what we used to do. We used to be a live band, right? And so, great concept, except so they're like, we're going to do this in two and a half weeks, which is complete, it's insane to think about when well, you two take six years to make a record, and we're like, yeah, we'll go in January 2nd, we'll have it done by you know January 20th, and we'll play it live. Crazy.
2: So if you want to start from the beginning, yeah, that when they first get in there, you can tell this is a very, very bad idea. <laughs> They're not, like, nobody seemed comfortable in them. It was this giant space. So yeah, it, it, why did you think you could write and record new songs in basically not even two weeks? I mean, you had two weeks, but they weren't working the weekends. It was just a, it, it just wasn't flowing. What I thought was really interesting is they got in there, and immediately they kind of just squished themselves against the back wall. They were all really tight together. Uh, George is sitting on the riser. Paul and uh, and John are sitting in chairs right there. They're all just they're back together again in this giant spot. They had the they had just the rando people like George's <laughs> friends, the Harry Christian. <laughs> what is this all about? Yeah. Come on, this is just not going to work. It's just not going to flow the way that you think. Even if you had the songs, okay, we got the songs and we have got two weeks to polish them. And get them on the get them on this thing, maybe. But to write them, mm-mm, you could tell right off the bat they were like, "This is a bad
3: this is idea. Crazy. This is not going to work." It's funny though because one of one of my takeaways from this was it's such a shame that the original premise didn't turn out. Mm. And and I and I was like you watching it because it looks like when you're watching it that they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. But I watched mm-hmm. the first two hours, <laughs> the first two hours of it again um, this morning. And I forgot that the first 10 or 15 minutes of it takes you through their career and then right. clearly sets out exactly why this is happening. And like you said, Mac, it's on the back of the Hey Jude and, um performance and that going well and like and being in a crowd. And then it clearly says that they go into that studio with the view that they're going to rehearse 14 new songs, 14 as well, why is that to be 14? Crazy. Like, do 10, maybe it's because all oh, songs are three minutes long, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but they're going to do 14 songs, they're then going to record that, have a live show, and then they're going to record that live show, and then that live show is the album, and then they also get a television program out of it, and they also get a documentary in terms of, without sounding like a terrible middle manager corporate thing, but in terms of blue sky thinking and out of the box <laughs> right. and all of that stuff, it's a great idea and it's it's a real aspirational idea. And my takeaway was, it's such a shame that they didn't achieve that. Don't get me wrong; you still get them on top of the roof and you get those iconic scenes. But an iconic scene is quite different to actually writing and rehearsing fourteen songs playing them live, that being your album, get the television program and the documentary out of it. And I was quite confused during it why they couldn't um, pin down exactly what they were doing because obviously one person knew what the idea was, what it was. And I wondered if it was Michael Lindsay Hogg because mm-hmm. he's the director, isn't he? Right. So he's, the whole point, it's, there, it's really funny, really looking at everyone else's, dif- everyone's motivations in that documentary. So... The Beatles themselves, afford the them have all got seemingly quite different motivations of each other. But all my, Michael Lindsay Hogg's going on is he just wants a story right. all the time. He's not really bothered what happens with the album whether it's any good or not. He's just thinking the film. How do I make this as a story? What where's the narrative arc and things like that? Um, and it, it it is just like really interesting. Just just like there's nine hours of it, isn't there? But within that nine hours. There's a million things happening at once, and I, that's why I thought it was just so engaging. Well, the, the one thing for me was that you had to you had to have
2: the subtitles on because there was a lot of stuff where it was like, first of all, I don't know who's speaking right now. And and so that, that would – it gave you a cue as to who was talking, especially off mic – not off mic, but off camera. And then I would have liked to have seen a little more about Michael's deal, uh, especially when he starts to figure out that this is not going to happen, the thing that you've committed to isn't going south on me quick. Now what do I do? I'm going to have to punt. I'm going to have to go back to the powers of being and say, mm, sorry, this whole giant thing that you've planned, not going to work out.
0: Yeah, I give a lot of credit to Peter Jackson and his team for shaping this because they had, mm. what was it, 150 150? hours? Yeah. It's crazy. You had to watch all that multiple times. You're probably tagging, oh, this is good here. But it would take forever to do that. And when you can see them speaking, that's in the film. But if they don't have film of them actually saying those parts, well, he uses shots from around that way, so it looks like this is how the conversation would have gone. This is who's sitting in the room at that time during that conversation to make it very watchable and have this incredible narrative. But yeah, there there are a lot of hangers-on. There's a lot of entourage around them at at all times, not to mention my favorite member, of the entourage, Yoko, sitting on John's lap or under the piano when he's playing it or wherever. It, it's like, we'll get into that later because I asked all of us to have 10, or top 10 moments from the show, which is tough, I know. And five takeaways from the show. And yeah, she's gonna make both my lists. But okay, but okay. so before we get into the movie, now that we've set the tone, we know why they were doing this. I wanna hear a little more experience from you growing up in Liverpool, where the Beatles are gods and, and everybody allegedly loves them. Uh, it's part of your community, I guess. But obviously not everyone's going to be like, that's my favourite band, or it's like, eh, stop pushing that on me. So I'd like to hear a little bit more of your experience, not only as someone from England, but someone from their town.
3: Yeah, so just to put a time frame on it as well, is I'm, I was born in 1978, so that's eight years after they uh, s- split up so that's sort of where that, that's where where i'm coming in and yes it's an absolute fact that liverpool as a city is very very proud of the beatles so vast vast majority even if you don't like the beatles the vast majority of people from liverpool are proud that the beatles come from liverpool as they should because, be because yeah yeah and and i also think the fact that there's a bias towards the Beatles in Liverpool. is quite normal as well. Um, you might, I'm sure you get this in the States, but certainly with Britain, with it being so small, it's like, you know, people from Manchester, a lot of their favourite bands will be Oasis, Stone Roses, The Smiths. You know, Makes Wales sense. is obviously a country, not a city. But I went to university in Wales, and I met a lot of my friends with, were from Wales. Mm-hmm. And to a man and a woman, all of their favourite bands... and I don't know if any of these are particularly known outside of the UK, but Manic Street Preachers, Stereophonics, and there was another band at the time in the late 90s called Catatonia, right? Like All of them, all of them, like, these bands were their favourite bands. So I think it's quite normal that people from a particular city or a particular country will lean towards people from from the same city as them. Absolutely. The Beatles is slightly different, though, because they're so big because they're so influential, because they're so like, ubiquitous and, and yeah. everywhere, then it's it you, you naturally will have, or some people will naturally have slight resistance to be to being told that these are the best band in the world repeatedly, and especially if you're young and you're a teenager, mm-hmm. you're not interested in what your dad or what your uncles or what the old men in the pub think. Right. You know what I mean? It's like. They're exactly who I don't agree with, and I don't want to agree with them, <laughs> so therefore, it probably quite in quite a juvenile way as a teenager, you're almost going to go out of your way. Some people to um not like uh, the Beatles, but it was everywhere. So in Liverpool, there's a Beatles museum. Right. Okay. There's a bus tour that you can go on called the Magical Mystery Tour, and I, I literally see it going round all the time. <laughs> <Do you? laughs> and it's, it's it's an open top bus, so you'll have seen this type of thing back in London. These open um, top buses that do tours of particular things. Now Liverpool's not massive; it's got a population of half a million people, so you can get round the main so you can go to penny lane you can go to strawberry fields mm-hmm. you can go to the cavern club you can go to where john lennon lived and where ringo Starr lived and where paul mccartney lived you can do that in like a couple of hours mm-hmm. um, so it's a big part of liverpool's tourism the beatles i have no doubt um, and also I've actually been, I don't know if there's ever been at any point anywhere an actual yellow submarine than the one that was in Liverpool in 1984. So, without going into the politics of it or whatever, but um, Liverpool as a city back then particularly, like Seventies, eighties, very deprived city, poverty's through the roof and what have you. So in the um, in the um, early eighties, the government gave us what exactly we needed, you no, know, rather than infrastructure and jobs and things like that. Right. they just built a massive thing called the Garden Festival, um, and what they did is they put Japanese gardens and Chinese gardens, and they put a few rides in it and things like this. but it was supposed to regenerate the area. If that was a kid, it was quite good because it was something to go to, but it obviously it was a piece of shit as well. Right? <laughs> but and one thing I always remember is they actually built a yellow submarine. So back in 1984, they were, you know, they were doing this with the Beatles as well. They a they built a massive yellow submarine that when you went in as a kid, you know, there was like poles to slide down and there was things to put up and down on and stuff like that. So as a child in Liverpool, you can't get away with it. And I remember in school as well, I remember having English lessons. Mr. Quayle giving us an English lesson on um, She's Leaving Home from the Sergeant Pepper album. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, it's good. I, I always remember actually really liking that English lesson because with it, She's Leaving Home, it's really good. It's, one of, it's The whole narrative is that it's all from the viewpoint of the parents and they think that the, the daughter's neglected them but what they actually show by what they say is actually how they've neglected her Um, and it's like you can see what they can't see it's a really really like clever lyric and I remember you know doing that in in English I remember like in music we used to sit there with little xylophones and maybe a little bit later keyboard we'd all have to learn how to play Penny Lane and before this I was talking to my wife wife went to a different school and she was saying oh yeah when I was at school we had to play you know There'd always be a bit in it where we all, like, they just just somehow just get in a Beatles song (laughs) and uh, we'd have to sing yesterday for no reason. It's like, let's just put a Beatles song in and sing um, yesterday. So it is absolutely all around us um, here. And my thing personally with the Beatles is I don't mind them. They've never really massively spoke to me. I haven't gone out of my way to dislike them or anything like that. I like some of the stuff, some of the stuff, but you, you said something earlier, which was absolutely spot on, Mac, it's like, yeah, I like them, I think they're okay, I respect them, I appreciate them, there's a few songs I really love, like, you know, like Long the Road, things, mm-hmm. a few things like that, but, do I ever put them on, do I ever really want to listen to them? No, not particularly, and, have I had it up to here, which actually that's not very good on a podcast, um, <laughs> um, have I had my fill of people telling me they're the best, old men in Liverpool telling me they're the best band in the world? Even And they're saying that even when they're people who are not particularly into music and they've probably only heard five songs themselves. Right. But does this is just point? Because you can't say the Beatles aren't the best band in the world. So... It's a real interest, interesting mix. But I appreciate and respect the Beatles, and they've definitely done a lot of good for Liverpool as a city. I think you know it brings money in and things like that. But I've never personally subscribed to the idea that they're the best band in the world. Though I do appreciate they may be, they, in pop culture. They, they are probably the most influential band in the world.
0: Absolutely. I, I don't think you can deny that. I mean, any band that came... At the same time or afterwards, were influenced by them. Any, any documentary you see on any band that started in the 60s and the 70s, it doesn't matter. Like, I was, a, especially in America, it doesn't matter what the band is Kiss or the Eagles or, you know, anybody's like, well, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and then I said, that's what I wanna do. Okay, it's like every single band, whether they're heavy metal, whether they were pop, you know, the Carpenters, it doesn't matter, man. It, it, any level, they're like, well, I saw the Beatles and then I realized my life was different after that. You know, so the, the influence cannot be overestimated.
2: Well, I remember too when uh, Julian Lennon put out his record in 84, 85. It's a lot. Of- and. Yeah, correct. And and people were like, oh, well, he he sounds just like the Beatles. I'm like, everybody sounds just like the Beatles. Everybody wanted to be the Beatles. I mean, it has to – it doesn't help that he looks just like the old man and sounds like him. But to your point, yes, after Ed Sullivan, everybody wanted to be the Beatles. I mean that was the British invasion was they just sent people, A&R people over and said, sign everybody who looks and sounds
3: anything like this. Go.
0: Yeah, Herman's Hermits. Could have been huge, you know. Peter Noon, cute kid, cute English boy, nice accent. He could have been huge.
3: <laughs> what do you think it was then that, so, because obviously, as you said, there's a British invasion mm. in the States in the 60s. And I know a number of those bands do like pretty well, but none of them like come remotely close to the Beatles. The term Beatlemania mm-hmm. comes from the response they got in the States. What do you think it was in the States that this? That made them distinct to to these other groups that were also part of the British invasion. Yeah. They put out better music.
2: I mean, I think I think pretty much every it was the Beatles and then the Stones were kind of their own thing, even though they were technically a British invasion band. Everybody else I think was just seen kind of as a copy. They may have had one or two hits, you know, like the zombies and the turtles and people like that, but the Beatles were the original and they were the best at what they did, writing hit songs.
0: Uh, And they were nice looking uh, lads too, you know. Uh, The Stones are a little scary looking, a couple of them, especially in the later 60s, you know. You know, look, the animals, my dad will tell you that Eric Burden can sing circles around Mick Jagger or any of the Beatles for that matter and and he is he's pretty amazing guy but you know he's kind of short he's kind of weird looking and you know the other guys in the band were odd I mean they're photogenic and they had this machine. Brian Epstein had this marketing machine with them on every uh, cover of every magazine all the knickknacks and the toys and the trading cards and all that stuff and it just it just blew up
2: the other thing too is they were a band they were I think they were the first real band that we ever had it wasn't Buddy Holly and the crickets it wasn't Elvis it wasn't it was four it was a band and each of the four guys were. I mean, I guess you could say marketed, but they all had distinct personalities. They all mm-hmm. had, they could all kind of go back and forth. Like they had a couple of clips at the beginning of early press conferences, you know, will you get a haircut. I just had a haircut yesterday. You know, oh, they can't, you know, it was, they had a back and forth. It was a package deal. It wasn't, you know, like you were saying the animals, who else was in the animals? Oh wait! Bum, 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 <laughs> right. I don't know. I mean, it, it, so and so if it was it was a package deal, and yes, they could sell not only the records, but they could sell posters and newsletters and pins and T-shirts and everything else. It was a, it was a machine that got put together.
0: Yeah, not just Chuck Berry or Little Richard or, or Elvis, right? You know, here's the right. a group, and they're all lovely lads. You know, they have those and, nice smiles.
2: Th- the thing is, too, and this even this even went into the '80s, like when, when we were growing up. In the United States, things from England were just sexier. They were just, you know, it was it was a different place. They had different, you know, they had a different look. They had a different sound. It was very, it was very cool to see that in the United States. They weren't from, you know, Cleveland or Milwaukee or something like that. It was this, it was this faraway land. Everybody dressed, you know, very uh, proper, very English.
0: Well, except for our generation, Jackson, the New Wave. It was color, right? It was like Duran Duran, you know, it's like flock of seagulls with this weird haircut, you know. It's like all that stuff came from England and it was colorful and it was new. The sound was new, it was young. It's the second British invasion, and it really hit big in America thanks to MTV, because of the image that they all had. Yes, it was on the radio, but being on MTV was huge, just like being on Ed Sullivan was huge for the Beatles and then you know some of the folks that that kind of came after them in the 60s. Now,
2: real quick. It's really interesting. A, I was going to say, I've got a, I've got a quick question for you. Um, and this is a cultural thing. What is with the freaking toast? <laughs> it's like they couldn't get enough of it. They had a toast guy. They're always, as soon as they get in there, where's the toast? Where's the toast? Somebody got the toast? Give me the toast. I'm like, part of it's tea, toast. It? Yeah, toast and tea. I mean, they have like, I know Snoop Dogg has got a guy that he pays to roll joints for him. That's his job. They had that guy, <laughs> Kevin, to get the tea. He always had, like, that was a they couldn't do anything and there was all oh, yeah exactly you know with the marmalade and the butter and everything oh my goodness it's just we just don't do that
3: here yeah we do we do love tea and toast <laughs> and Clearly. together you know, i mean i'm trying to think of a cleverer answer than yeah that's just the way it is
2: yeah <laughs> and, and the and the crazy part is too, like with those guys, they could. I mean, at that point in time, they could have anything they want. If they wanted caviar from Russia flown in, <laughs> no problem. You want, you know, French champagne, not a I want toast. I want
3: toast with the marmalade and tea. That's what I want. Get it right now. But that—that's because um, action that you just can't beat. A good cup of tea, and uh, okay. you know, a, a good cup of tea will solve all of the world's all the world's problems. That's, right. that, that's that's a fact. Um, but it's dead interesting. I don't want to go go off the Beatles, but I just did quickly want to touch on the um, the thing that you said about the exotic. Mm. It's interesting that we always want musically what we haven't got. So yeah, I said earlier that you know people will have a bias towards something. But you've asked about my dad... So my dad was never into the Beatles, mm-hmm. which is probably why. I think he was a little bit too old. He was born in 1947. So when the Beatles come out in 1962, he's already 15, 16. So he's a little he's sort of too old mm-hmm. uh, for it almost. And obviously they're not now, but if you do look at the Beatles in 1962, they are a bit of a, like, you know, like a girl's band, you know, band you know, yeah. a little bit of a, a boy band mm-hmm. uh, type thing. And it's really interesting because the stuff he was into and the stuff that I used to listen to when I was really young, was all of his old Johnny Cash records, Hank Williams records, gotcha. Little Richard records, all of the music that my dad liked was American music. Now, interestingly, he's he's actually not too far off the same age as the Beatles, probably like a little bit younger. That's right. Who were influenced massively by American music. And I look at now, um, I, mean, I don't want to talk about what I do, but you know one band, for example, that I quite like. Got a very American sound. Yeah. And it is quite interesting that you know, you're know you often attracted to the exotic. And what the exotic is for you two is different to what the exotic is for me. In terms of, yeah, I know where Penny Lane is. I know where Strawberry Fields is. I don't really want to hear about a very normal, normal residential street right. that I know about. <laughs> when I'm listening to music, I want escapism. So therefore I listen to, I want to hear about this hotel in California, for example.
0: Mm, is that the Chateau Marmont? I think it is. Um yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, that's a great. And you can check it out. It's actually our most popular downloaded album. Number uh is it number fourteen, number fifteen is their take on the Eagles, because in nineteen seventy-six they released two diamond selling albums, Eagle's Greatest Hits Volume 1, which is the number one selling album in America ever, over Thriller, and of course, Hotel California, which is the best thing they ever did. But all right, well, I, I don't feel like we can walk through the whole thing, guys. I mean, I, I I feel like we would need six shows to do that, you know? Do you want to do takeaways? You know, or do we want moments and then we can do takeaways? Yeah, yeah
2: let's do moments and then takeaways.
0: You, all right, well, I want us to all just kind of going around.
3: I would imagine we're going to have a lot of crossover here um, as well. So my first highlight was the secret recording of Paul and John after George's left the band. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really insightful because the rest of it you watch knowing that they know they're being watched. And that has to feed in a little bit into the way you behave. But the thing that really came across to be it's they're being recorded i can't remember where it said that the, the recording machine was hidden i don't know if it was in a plant pot or it was something like that so like the flowers
0: um, or something yeah
3: yeah yeah and <laughs> the, the talk and this is george it's just left and the thing that really got me was how just reasonable they were and how like so this is like you know this fellas in 1969 and how just like reflective they were and how calm and measured they were so george has left the band And then rather than going, ah, George is a dickhead, "What's what's he doing, and all of this, he's going, like, you can hear Paul McCartney going, well, I know I'm like this, and I do this, and I know that I probably haven't given him the freedom, and I tell him a little bit what to do. And John's like, yeah, and I do that as well, and we're quite a powerful dynamic, and you've got to imagine what it's like for George. And I just thought, that was really, really insightful. One, just to hear what they say, but then I was surprised by the whole tone of it, about just their levels of, like, self-awareness and how they were trying to put themselves in George's shoes. I thought that, that whole bit was great.
0: I'm with you there. Yeah, absolutely. It, they just showed a maturity. None of them were 30 at this point, right? Like, like you know, it, it's like they're, they're 28, 29, maybe George is 27. He was always a little younger than them. So they can always kind of boss him around. But the, they have this kind of understanding of each other that I wasn't talking like that when I was 28 years old. You know, they're, they're mature guys. No doubt. How about you, Jack? <laughs>
2: You want me to do I, well? One of one of the things for me, and I I kind of saw it at the beginning. And then I went back and rewatched it. But the one thing that I really love, it was in the beginning. It was Mal playing that playing the anvil, just the look on his face that he was like, yes. I, I get to be part of this. I'm, oh my god, I can't believe that I'm, I mean, just sitting there with a the little hammer waiting, ding, ding, ding. That was fantastic. That was a big one for me. The other one that I really liked was when they were doing Get Back and you could see Paul, like, he just, he wouldn't let it go. He just keeps going. He keeps hammering. Boom, boom, boom. JoJo, uh, JoJo, JoJo, uh, JoJo Jackson, okay, JoJo Williams, and you can see John starts to like, he's starting to drift off. And then he says, Jojo left his home in Tucson, Arizona. And he just whips, right? He's like, I don't know what it was looking for, but that's it. You got it go and it's the i looked at it in hindsight like you know how this is going to end up you know what's going to happen you know how the but just the look on his face where he just he realizes that's it that's that's what we were looking for that's fantastic i'm you know, with you on now
0: and, man his face it goes ding ding mm. he was yes. so
3: excited to be part of the recording yes. that was fun yeah yeah. And I, I, yeah i've got a similar get back it's it's a slightly different bit to yours actually but it's the bit where you essentially see Paul McCartney, and he's just there with Ringo and George Harrison, and he's, you know, he's got the chords, and he's working it out, and he's just playing it for about two and a half minutes, and it's the clip that you see they've put on YouTube, because it's where you really see that someone just hammering a song, working it out working it out, and then, like, you know, 90 seconds in, he's got nothing, two and a half minutes in, he's got what will become a classic song, and so actually see that happening in, like, real time. And someone just going with the song, going with it, going with it. And then like you said, action is later on. You get the bit where Lennon's involved in the work and the working on the lyrics. So we get back. I mean, obviously it's gonna be a major part of it's the name of the uh, the documentary as well, but there's a couple of bits there that are really, really like quite sort of special to sort of just if you've got any interest in any music and just sort of seeing songwriting going on, whether you like the band or not. And that's why I think this works, whether you like the band or not. It's just to get to see those like creative sparks flying around. Mm-hmm. It's just something to behold, to be honest. Yeah, just to see them create it from nothing, and oh, and uh, yeah,
2: it's it, for something that would come to become such an icon of popular culture, and you're just—it's coming out of you, like you're just—you're creating it. Yeah, it's—it's it's almost like you were there with them, even though it was fifty years later. <laughs>
0: So I didn't put this as one of my favorite moments, but it's a key moment in the film, and it actually happens a couple of times. Somebody is away. One day, I think it was George was away. One day, I think Paul wasn't there yet. And they're jamming, and Yoko is screeching into the microphone. And it is the most god-awful noise I've ever heard in my life. My whole thing is she shouldn't be there. Or if she can be there, fine. She can go hang out with the Hare Krishnas. Or she can sit with Linda 20 yards away. She doesn't have to sit on John's lap or under his chair or be, you know, three inches away from him the whole time. And, and some people like, well, she's an artist. She has a right to be there. I'm like, oh, really? Listen to this. I've heard... Water buffaloes being eaten alive on the Serengeti by a pack of cheetahs that made a more appealing noise than Yoko going, Aah! you know, and it's, and it's like, I, I just wonder what she's singing like an angel, and then Paul came and said, you know what, Yoko, what we could really use here is um, the sound of a dying animal, can you give us, can you give us that, Can can you do that for us, and then she changed what she was doing, I don't know.
2: Well, it, 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 you're talking about when they were in Apple and she was doing that? It
0: was twice. Yeah, once was in Apple. I think once was back at Twickenham.
2: Because the the thing for me with that one at Apple was that she's doing that, and it, yes, it's it's grading is an upgrade uh, to that. But Paul is playing the drums mm-hmm. on it, and he doesn't look like he's super annoyed. It looks like he's just like, we're just kind of fooling around, which I thought was interesting. I would have thought he would have been like, oh, she's at it again. But, <laughs> right. And the other thing I kind of liked too, and this was a couple of different times where they would just go and do something else. Like, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. they would sit down at the drums and and Ringo wasn't like, whoa, 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 whoa. this is, no, 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 this is my thing that I do. You want to play the drums? Go ahead and play the drums. He picked up the bass and started messing with it. I think John, or at one point, Paul was playing George's Telecaster, but he had it upside down. It was all, it was kind of like a real free flowing, you know, if you're feeling it, do it vibe. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, well, I mean, we we just took like 10 minutes to do one. Um, so we, we might have to start to shorten these down. But why don't you go, Neil, and, and pick out another one or two, you know, that that you that was important to you.
3: Well, you don't need to worry. I've covered off a couple of mine um, right. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> in that last one. Um, a song I really didn't know at all, which I feel like any Beatles enthusiast listening will just be, like, sound like blasphemy. But I absolutely love Anna Force, It's one of the best songs that they did in these sessions, is I've Got a Feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's the very, very first one you hear them practising at the very start of the documentary, that along with uh, Don't Let Me Down, I think it is. But as you know, they keep going back to these songs. And I didn't know that song at all. And I wonder if it is, I wonder if it is because it, I was listening to that and go, this sounds a little bit like a song like the band would do. Mm-hmm. And I love the band. So I don't know if it's maybe... I like it because it's sounding a little less like the Beatles, yeah. almost or the mid '60s Beatles. But yeah, every time they were playing or working on, I've got a feeling that was a high point for me.
0: Cool, good one, good one. Mm. Hmm.
3: Do you want to go
2: with another one? It, it, well, it, it, you know, it kind of in the in the same vein as that, it, it kind of it broke my heart when he's playing at one point in time. Paul's playing another day you know every day she gets a bun, bun, bun the morning. that's a solo song so he's already working on solo stuff so i knew like and i think i think there was one that john played um and i don't remember what the name it was but it was on his first solo record so i'm like they're already they've already moved past this they're already at the end of this they're already working on songs that would become that and then the other heartbreaking one for me was when george is talking about i be mine he's like well you know i mean if you want i'm like dude that's a good song come on baby get in there and he's like yeah man if you want it cool if you don't want to play it, I mean whatever I'll put it on my thing I'm like man he's all—he's still the little brother he's still the dude that's like hey come on guys I can do this too I'm like oh heartbreaking that that something and he just made it up that night and it was, it was this fantastic song that would become a classic but it was just like you just want to just to me I just want to be like don't let this go away please don't let this go away I know you're going to but don't let it happen you can still work together
0: because, see, that was my number one on this list, guys, was that you did oh. see stuff that would become solo material. You, you saw Lennon working on Road to Marrakesh. You, you saw Ringo coming in at the beginning of Part 3 with George working on Octopus's Garden. And, and like you said, yeah, three or four times George came up with some. Well, I just, I just started this last night. It's for you, Blue, you know. Uh, oh, here's – it's something. What? You just made that up last night? You know, and so – You can see that George is starting to grow out of Little Brother mode, right? The the, the White Album, which had just been released a couple months before, was where he really shone, where he finally got more than just one of his songs on the album, and he could stretch out a little bit. And now we're starting to see some of these things develop. They worked on some uh, All Things Must Pass for a little while. We we saw that. So uh, to me, that's cool. Yes, I know they're going to break up, but it shows that they've all grown up. We've been in each other's pockets since we were teenagers. Now we seem older, we're still not 30, but we're grown men with our own identities. We don't need the Beatles anymore. And in a way you got four great new groups. All things must pass was a triple album because he had all this backup that he couldn't get on Beatles records all that time, you know. And I love All Things Must Pass. I love George Harrison, so yeah, I mean, that, that was my number one moment was to see all those little parts where, yeah, these didn't make it on Beatles records, but we know these songs. They made it out there, you know.
2: Another one for me real quick was you were talking about uh, the scene where where Ringo's playing what would become Octopus's Garden. And, and they go to George and he's got that look. He, it's another one. He just he whips his head around. He knows that's something. He knows that's not just a throwaway thing. He's got something there. And he goes and he's like, well, you know, you could change the chord, you know, do it like this wow, that's really cool. He understands that that is, that is something workable, not
3: just, you know, playing garbage. That's a real highlight as well, I, I thought, because it's one of the few points in which you see a different dynamic. So a lot mm-hmm. of the dynamic is Paul McCartney in particular suggesting to other people what to do, right. and obviously just to John Lennon. So you, to see that by where way, it's just, I don't mean the lesser two members, but the others, you know, the, the non the less represented members,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: When yeah. they're having their own little interaction, and George has got that sort of role of authority when it comes to Ringo, and he's helping him out. For that's really good the way you can see that dynamic. And I thought that bit was like really just—it was a really pleasant watch, and just been quite heartwarming that bit where George is um, helping him out with Octopus's Garden.
0: I agree.
2: Well, and and I know my, because I was watching with my wife and she was like, well, I don't, I don't get why wasn't he credited then? I mean, he's, he's helping him write the song. And I, I said, I I think it was one of those deals where he, he kind of just kind of pointed him in the right direction. It was Ringo's song. He didn't want to step on it. Well, you better put my name on that too. It's just like, no, here you go, buddy. I'm just kind of. I'm pushing you in the right direction. Like you said, like kind of like now he gets to become like the big brother and mm-hmm. say, you know, here's here's how you can you can kind of flesh this out. Yeah, that was a great I love that scene. Now, well, I mean, if we're talking about it, we'll, we'll get to this has to be on everybody's top 10. The arrival of Mr. Uh, Billy Preston <laughs> when he comes in, yeah. because I like to use the word stone cold. He was ice cold, sub zero walking into there just like What's up, fellas? How you doing? You want me to sit down and play? Oh, and that just that changed the entire
3: dynamic mm-hmm. after he after he came in and started working with them. Yeah, I've got exactly the same. I've got written down here, Billy Preston, shining lights. <laughs> it's what I've written, because he literally just lights the whole thing up. You can see just adding one other ingredient to the mix just freshens everything up. All of a sudden, they're all getting to the groove of it and everything, and yeah, Literally every scene he's in, they look and he's playing, they look happy. And the other thing too is, he like, I, I think there was a one scene where there was a little bit of back and forth. But
2: for the most part, they just let him do it. Like he here, mm-hmm. he's you can see him, see, he's watching, and he just he puts it in there. And the same thing with Ringo too. Like they're like I know Ringo gets maligned a lot, but they don't really give him a whole lot of direction at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Like there were a couple of points. But you, usually he just he, – he listens and then he just fills right in exactly what's needed.
0: He's just on, yeah. No, it's ironic you, you called him a shining light because just a few years later, he would play on Shine a Light on, on the Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street – which is our show coming out this week—the uh, 50th anniversary of Exile, you know. So that's fun. No, nope. <laughs> that
3: was an ex- that was an excellent segue. that brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, thank you.
0: Yeah, that's that's you what I do. You,
3: you can tell you've done 50 odd episodes.
0: Yeah, you, you tell I have not a lot else to do during the day. No.
3: <laughs> Hi, I'm Amanda Lehman, and you're listening to Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock podcast
0: (laughs) no but back to Ringo honestly guys for a fun part in part three at one point Ringo's sitting on the floor Paul's talking about what they're going to do next and Ringo looks up and goes I've just farted (laughs) I thought you'd like to know. I'm like, that's so funny, man. It's, it's, you know, it's American juvenile, yes, but it's also, he's being very polite about it, like, you may not want to walk over this way, gents. I've I've just let one go, just, you know, FYI. I'm like, well, that's a funny moment if ever there was one, right? All right, so you can point out a more, more mature one, I guess.
3: I've got one that's not just one particular moment, but there's a section of it. There's a bit where they're just enjoying playing a load of the covers that they used to play right in the Hamburg days. And I think in the actual I think it lasts for maybe like ten minutes or so in the actual programme itself. And this is part highlight and part takeaway um from me. But what it really does was it really illustrates it out, even though they're not a live band anymore, how just all of those hours and hours and hours that they played, starting back in Hamburg, where they played like eight hours a night, nice, nice, which just sounds mad, how they just, they've got this encyclopedic knowledge mm-hmm. of songs that, at the flick of a switch, they could also start playing again, like because he played them so many times like back in the day. And you really got that sense of, I think, me personally, I often think of the Beatles less as a band of great musicians, but a band of perfectly acceptable musicians who write great songs. And I think when you see them do all of those covers from the Hamburg days, mm-hmm. not that they're particularly difficult songs to do, but you just see they're absolute professionalism and tightness and units as an actual group, as like a little band of brothers almost. And I thought the whole, the playing of those songs, and there's loads and loads of times, so you know, when they're writing songs and it's or they're referring, a lot of their musical references, especially John Lennon, he'll refer back to, well, do you remember in Hamburg when we did this? Mm-hmm. And it's strange because Hamburg seems like, an age away right. but realistically it's only like nine years this was earlier I mean like now that takes us back to about what 2013 14 which you know isn't that long ago right. but it, it's, it's really interesting how that experience that they had in Hamburg makes them the band that they are and also how important they see it and they rely on it and they constantly reference it. So I thought the whole sections when they were doing those covers was just really, really... It was great to see and it was just it was interesting as well.
0: With you there. Chuck Berry, Hank Williams, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff, you know. Go ahead, Jackson.
2: Well, I was going to say that one of the big things for me was, you know, you were talking about the, them playing together and they referenced this a couple of times was the, the absence of... Brian Epstein and and you know Paul saying they need daddy around to you know kind of corral everybody I think that that was a, a much bigger loss than maybe they had thought about before because he really kept them on point and to have to I think Paul had to take that on at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And he, you could really see how, especially when George walked out and then they had that next day where they were sitting around, like, what are we doing? And his whole thing is come up, come on, come on, come on, come on. We got to move forward, move forward. We can't, we can't let this day go to waste. We can't let these things, you know, it slip away from us. I think it, that may have contributed a lot to his tenant demeanor at that point in time, but mm-hmm. where he had to really drive the ship now, or it was going to go off the rails, one thing that I wrote down, too, is I would have loved to have seen this same exact thing for an earlier record, like maybe even Hard Day's Night or something, because at that point, at this point in time, Lennon and McCartney, everything is still Lennon and McCartney, but they're really not writing songs together. They're right. definitely helping each other out, but I really wanted to – I mean, that would have been great to just see them, just the two of them. No one's married yet. Nobody has anything else. They're just working and so I, I wondered how the, how the dynamic would have been different back then.
0: I, I thought it was interesting when, you know, in the first part, George is talking about how Eric Clapton is the best at being able to kind of play and do lead and do these runs. And he's like, yeah, I can't really do that that well. Eric's really the best at it. And then once George leaves, John's pretty flippant about it. I don't know if it's the end of part one or the beginning of part two, but I think it's the end of part one. He's like, eh, if he's not back by Tuesday. We get Eric Clapton. It's like, it's just that easy. George leaves. We just get his best pal who can outplay him anyway. And I'm like – Now, you you say
2: that, and I, I picked up on that too, but they didn't do anything about that though. They were real quick to say, we need him back in the band. Of course, yes. Yeah, so, I, I, thought we, I thought that was good because, yeah, they could – I mean, at that point in time, they could have gotten anybody, including perhaps a young Mr. James Page, to come in <laughs> – that would have been interesting. But yeah, it they, they wasn't even, like it, like you said, it was a flipping comment that he made. Mm-hmm. But they never really seemed like they explored that. There was never an option. George has to be back in here. Let's go see him right now.
0: Yeah, but if you ask Eric Clapton, I saw him in an interview. He was like, did you ever think about being in Beals? Did I think about it? Yeah, <laughs> I did. Because they had money and they had power and that sounded pretty good.
3: I wonder as well with that as well how much he really meant it and how I much know. of it is just on a brain face because so, <laughs> it, it links it links a little bit to, to one of my highlights less a highlight just more something I noticed and was of interest to in me and it is about John Lennon <laughs> And it's when, uh, when Paul McCartney going through Let It Be, and then he's playing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. If you watch John Lennon for the whole time of playing Let It Be, I mean, Let It Be, you know, like everyone knows Let It Be. It's like a you know, like, worldwide, like, you know, like classic, uh, like like a legacy song. Mm-hmm. And he's just got, boy, well, he's got a matter of fact attitude towards it. Like, oh, yeah, you've just written uh, Let It Be. But I wouldn't even say it's a matter of fact. He's, he's almost got like a mild contempt for it. just yes. a bit where he's like taking a piss a little bit out of the lyrics. Yeah. What's really interesting we know now that and you would imagine Paul McCartney never told John Lennon this at the time, but we know now that the words to let it be come from this dream that Paul McCartney had where his mum spoke to him. Like this like really profound moment, where it's like his mum was visited from like the grave in a dream and she just said, Oh like let it be and all of this. And then he's wrote this like heartfelt lyric and it's gonna be like this great song. And then John Lennon's just there, like, just taking the piss out of it, and just like, and I found that all the way through. And I've watched interviews since with Paul McCartney, and he talked about how John Lennon, like, never really gave him any credit or never was that ever really nice or complimentary about yeah. anything that he wrote, just because that's the way he was. That's John. And I think John Lennon's whole demeanor and attitudes in it at different times it's just really interesting like sometimes he really looks like he's enjoying it sometimes he's just totally taking a piss and it seems like he's trying to undermine other people Mm -hmm. sometimes he looks completely uh, disinterested but my main point is i just think it's really interesting when you see them writing classic songs and other members of the band are like "Eh, Mm -hmm. yeah yeah another song yeah
0: or he's he's mouthing words in a funny way
3: yeah yeah yeah
0: you need to take the piss
3: out of Paul. But I think that's really good because, I don't, in a way, I think fans of any band, it's its interesting. Like, we often are probably a little bit too serious and, like, you know, have these great reverence for these songs. But, but a lot of these musicians, it was the job, and they just knock these songs out and then move on to the next one. And, right. And its they don't have the same reverence as musicians as we do, as fans. And it's quite sort of good to see that side of it sometimes and just, you know... Nothing these none of needs to be taken that seriously, really.
0: Yeah, uh, we, we get into that in my, in my top five takeaways. We'll get into that for
2: sure. Well, and one of the things too that I was that I was noticing, especially when they got to Apple, was you know the guys in the in the recording studio, Glenn Johns and everybody. You know, you, okay, here we go. One, two, three, boom! They go into it, and then they start. They then they just wander off. Okay, I guess that wasn't a take. Well, let's keep going. I mean, are we gonna do this for real? Are we gonna mess around? You know, you had that back and forth of I've got a job to do. Especially when they said, you know, at one point in time, Johns was already committed to another project. He had to get this thing finished. And now we're playing. You know, Chuck Berry. Okay, guys, you know, we gotta get you back on point here. You know, are we are we fooling around? Or are we doing this for real? Uh, and another point too. One of uh, one of the things that I was going to point out is, Glenn looked like he could have been in Oasis in 1996. <laughs> I, I think someone uh, ripped their look off from him.
0: Oh, <laughs> man. Well, he's from one of my favorite moments because in part three, it's kind of like they were thinking about doing okay, they're not going to go to Libya because that's nuts. They were thinking about doing Primrose Hill here in London, which is a place that I visit a couple times a week. It's about a mile from my house. I take the dog over there. There's a good butcher over there. Plus, it's got this incredible view of London you can look down on. And if they played at the top of that hill, that would have been pretty special. But then they said, okay, well, we can't do that. Now Paul's like, oh, this is really falling apart. We're really not going to get a spot. And then Glenn and Michael come over to him with the suggestion of, you know, what we could do. And you don't hear them saying it, but you can see Paul, his eyes light up and point like up like, yeah, we could go up on the roof. And then they start exploring it. And to me, that's really neat because Paul was definitely down. He wanted to do it all. He had the ambition he sees himself as the leader at this point, which he absolutely was. And now he's like, ah, it's not coming together the way I hope. And he's like, oh, yeah? Good idea. Let's go check it out. And, of course, the rest is history.
2: Yeah, there, there were a couple of moments where you could tell McCarty was, you know, they would tell him something. He was like, yeah, okay, yeah whatever that's you know maybe we could look at that like that's that's a no-go like instead of him just saying no that's not going to happen it was the you know kind of just brush it off but yeah you're right when they when they and glenn knew that it, it, they were in trouble and he had salvaged something so yeah when he had that idea it was like okay now we're back on push it back to the do something
3: constructive because yeah th- we have to get this thing done
0: yeah we got any more moments you want to make sure we uh, we talk about there uh neil
3: i, I will package together Free george moments and i've packaged these all together in a way in terms of i'm 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 thinking like michael Lindsay Hogg now i'm thinking like the actual i'm thinking of the three episodes as a whole and i'm thinking of it as something worth watching and being as being a story and having like a narrative arc so i think a highlight is george leaving the band Mm. that infinitely makes everything more interesting so if you're telling any story Any story that's ever been written has to have a problem in it that is overcome. So the problem in this story is she always leaves the band and George isn't happy. So that was one thing. The very fact that he leaves, that's good. (laughs) It it adds a little bit of interest and drama and jeopardy. The second thing, ever since we said we were going to do this, I've been dying to ask you both about this moment because I'm not too sure what i think about it so george has left the band mm-hmm. the next day they're all waiting around you know they're trying to get in touch with john lennon and i think it's just paul mccartney's there and ringo and a few other like randoms mm-hmm. um are there and then there's a bit where paul mccartney's talking about it and there's a real close-up but there's a real close close-up that holds on his face for absolutely ages and on his eyes in particular and it looks like He's starting to fill up or he looks like he's starting to get, like, upset. Mm. And there's a bit where, like, he puts his hands over his face and he just stops and the camera just holds on him. Now, I don't know if he is actually starting to get emotional and actually starting to fill up. Or whether it's just one of those things, you know, where, like, if you put a massive close-up of our eyes... Now they would just the longer you look at it, the the, the wetter they would look, and he's <laughs> just like, you know, we have wet eyes. Um, and I was just thinking, I don't know at all whether at that point he is getting emotional or upset, or it's just a trick of the camera because he's just holding on his eyes for ages. Did you? A did you notice that? And if you did, do you do you think he is getting upset or, or not? And if you don't know what I'm even talking about, that would suggest to me he isn't.
0: Well, I I know that. I wasn't sure if he was getting upset or if he's just worn down at that point. You know, it's it's like maybe he's getting emotional, like, oh, my God, my band's falling out. Or it's like, oh, it's just one more thing. I mean, why am I still a Beatle? I mean, you know, it's, I think at that point, a lot of them didn't not want to be Beatles, but they didn't just want to be Beatles. It, it was a tough time, you know. Plus, they're going through these relationships. I mean, Paul had broken up with Jane, Asher, and now he's with Linda. John's with Yoko. She's still married. There's a part in the picture where her divorce goes through. Like, you know, so they finally got that out of the way. You know, Ringo's still with Maureen. Obviously, that doesn't last because of Ringo's behavior, you know. So there's... They have so much more responsibility now, and like I said, they look older to me than just 28 or 29 or whatever they were, because they did have so much responsibility, and they had done so much work the previous decade, as far as touring and recording and all that, so I, I probably didn't pick up on it the way you did know, uh, Neil, but I don't know if it was that session or the one that came like the next day, but it was they were kind of sitting around in a circle. They, they'd gone to see George, and George is like, no, no, I'm not coming back, forget it. So then they come back the, you know that, that next Monday or Tuesday, whatever it was. John and Yoko aren't there yet. So they're talking about, I think George has a problem with Yoko always being there. Yoko's sitting on his amp. Why is Yoko in the band photos? She's not a member of the Beatles. She didn't play the Cavern Club. Why is she here? Like, I got a woman too. She doesn't have to be three inches away from me. And Paul was pretty philosophical about it. You know, and talking about how, no, they just want to be together and who are we to say that they shouldn't be, but then they were talking about how all right, so Michael's there. He's still trying to push Libya. And then he's like, oh, we could do it in Brighton. And Lynn goes, oh, yeah, Brighton would be great. And Paul says something like, stay out of this, Yoko. You know, like, He says that to her. And to me, that's a great moment because it kind of reflects everything that was going on. But already they're aware of it. Like, Yoko's already a meme in early 1969 for the problem with the Beatles, right?
2: Well, going back and watching it again. Yeah, I was gonna say, going to say, going back and watching it again. They, there is a so Ringo gets there first after the meeting and they say something about how did it go? He's like, Well, eh, you know, it went all right at the beginning, and then it kind of fell apart at the end, and they're kind of talking back and forth. And he straight up says, Joko did all the talking for John. And I didn't pick up on that the first time. I was right. like, Okay, yeah, that's that's a deal. But I think to your point, I think he was getting emotional. And I think it was it was kind of a it was yet yeah, everything was kind of crashing down on his head at that point in time. He could feel it slipping away. You know, George was gone. Then John's not showing up. Uh, and sniffing a lot of
0: heroin in those days. Well, that
2: doesn't that doesn't help John either. Works, yeah, yeah, there was a there was a uh, there was a uh, clip too where he's walking out. Ringo's walking out. He's going to have lunch with. I think he's going to have lunch with George. And he asked him all, "Any of those pep pills? Any pep pills <laughs> hanging around? I'll take a couple of those." But uh, real quick, switching gears here, another big one for me that I kind of picked up on the first time that I watched it again was that sit down that they had. What was his name? Dick James, the publisher, mm-hmm. and he's going through that. and They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah. And, you know, pu- publishing rights. You know, as far as like the the music and how it works out. And I'm and I'm just sitting there thinking, Paul McCartney, you're a billionaire because of this, because of what they're talking about right now. And he's like, eh, yeah, I mean, do people really buy that music? Who's gonna buy that? Like a <laughs> piano person? And I'm like. Uh,
0: Buy it ready? yourself, Paul. Buy it. Buy it. Yeah,
2: man. I mean, that, that is – this is going to make – this
3: conversation you're having right now is going to make you a lot of money down the road. And then he goes and gives the same advice to Michael, Michael Jackson, doesn't he? He then buys all of the rights to the Beatles songs. Well, that was uh, the sore subject later. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's actually it, – in one of those conversations as well, he shows a real foresight, Paul McCartney, because he actually says, people will look back on this in 40 years and say, the Beatles split up just because Yoko sat on an, sat on an amp. Right. And that's exactly what everyone does think. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: <laughs>
3: that is pretty much what everyone um, thinks. Um, and by the way, my, my last one on um, me, George George Harrison uh, and the, uh, the actual story of it, uh, um, it's really, there's a cool little bit it's really subtle you know when they're on the top of the um, Abbey Road videos and you know he pulls the lead out of the amp because the police are there and they've got to turn it off mm-hmm. it's really interesting that the person who puts the lead back in so they can carry on is George Harrison George, that's right. so you get this really like Cool. Like if you were writing a story, it's like the character in it who doesn't want to do anything or go any go anywhere and is quite resistant and leaves the uh, leaves the Beatles at one point. He's the one that when someone else tries to pull a plug on it, he goes nah and actually puts like plugs it back in and carries on the music. So if you were if you were writing that, you couldn't write that better. And the fact that it. Um, It goes that way. It is grace.
0: Yeah, no, George definitely had a problem with authority. You know, it's what the tax man is all about. You know, he he assaulted, allegedly, a nightclub bouncer in France. That's why they couldn't go to France because George was going to get rung up in France. And number two for me was George and Paul arguing, especially the part where George is like, what? Why it makes you think I'm not going to play it right? You know, if you don't want me to play it all, I won't play it all. Just tell me what you would like me to do. What will please you, and I'll do that. And then Paul gets all defensive, and I'm like, this is a big moment, and I, it's something I'd seen and heard before, but then to see the whole context of what was going on when that happened i've been seeing that since i was a kid and and see this moment that i'm sorry that i know oh you don't annoy me anymore like anymore he doesn't annoy you so he used to annoy you right and still and and he's pushing against that authority because paul's the older guy telling him since he was 13 play it this way john and i wrote this you do this he's like no paul i'll play it just give me some space will you i mean that's that's kind of part of this all and you know it wraps into all his leaving and everything else
2: and, and that was the weird part too for me is that it, he when he leaves the band it doesn't really seem like it's that there's that hard stop moment like he's just he's just kind of like oh i guess i'll just leave the band and and cuz they were really starting to groove there what do you mean you're going to leave the band? What are you talking about? Up, oh, see so you around the clubs. And he just walks out. And I always thought it was like this big screaming, you know, screw you, no, screw you, you can't tell me. But, but it was really just almost really subtle. And he just, just got to the end of his rope. And I think it, to, it was part of the fact that at that point in time, McCartney and Leonard are standing and they're really grooving back and forth. And I think he just... He just kind of got to that point where he's just like, well, I'm just always going to be the background guy. They're never going to take me seriously. They're never going to – I'm never going to be at the same level that they are. Yeah. Ever. So you know what?
0: Yeah, even I'm though out. John's coming in with nothing and I write I Am E one night and I write, you know, For You Blue the, the next night, you know. And Correct. It's, it's like, you know, I'm doing some good stuff here. And then they come to my house. They want to talk to me. And instead of the guy, John Lennon, who I looked up to and recruited me into the Beatles in 57 or 58, he's got Yoko here. Talking for him, it's like, why are you talking to me? Why isn't my friend and mentor doing the talking about our relationship? Why are you even here? Is, is that's just what I pulled out of it. That just could be my my thinking. But I, you know, I love my life and my woman, but she doesn't need to sit on my lap while I'm
2: working. Not at work. Not yeah at work. that that was it. That was the thing that I knew that she was there. <laughs> I just didn't realize how present. I mean, like she was literally just touching him the entire. Okay, get away from me. But have get your own identity, right? Correct. You know, come on. Correct.
0: Well, I add a couple of other things, but honestly, I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of about songs, and one of them is just about Henry Cooper, just because my dad got to see Muhammad Ali, still Cassius Clay at the time, fight Henry Cooper at Wembley the summer of 1963. So when they're, when they're when they're trying out the two of us, And then at one point he's going, Henry Cooper, Henry Cooper. And they flash pictures of Henry and Muhammad up there. I'm like, yeah, you know, because Muhammad Ali is from Louisville and my dad knew his managers. And before he came over to bike around Europe, he said, uh, yeah, come meet with me. I'll be at the Savoy. I'll get you a couple tickets. And he got my dad like sixth row seats. Like he sat in front of Frank Sinatra or something crazy like
2: that. So when I was looking at those pictures, when they were talking about that did did they actually fight or was he in a car accident because it looked like it looked like he looked like he had been beaten to a pulp and Ali was just kind of standing there like hey how you doing all
0: right well they actually fought twice I think the first fight was a little close I think the second fight was just like a payday for Henry and and, and Muhammad knew he was going to win. I, I think, Neil, maybe you can educate us on that.
3: No, I don't really follow boxing. Yeah. Before, I'm, I'm a love another fighter, you know that.
0: <laughs> that's for sure.
3: And that's why we love you.
0: Well, so let's let's get... Because, gosh, we've already done this a little bit longer. Let's get to our five takeaways, man. Obviously, this was epic. And like you said, it gave us a new appreciation of this band that we've been appreciative of, but kind of lukewarm on. And, and after seeing this... I kind of have an interest in maybe going back and listening to some of their stuff and maybe getting to know stuff that I've overlooked or maybe only listened to a couple times. So why don't we start with you five to the top. Jackson, we'll let you start this time.
2: Okay, so five to the top. I mean... it Number five has to be that, to me, the takeaway, George was still felt like he was a little brother. Paul was definitely the ringleader at the time. They were still, even though this was the, the, the end of the, their time together, they were still at the top of their game, still professionals, could just jump right back in there they could start first thing in the morning and just start to sing there wasn't like the oh I got to warm up I mean they just they were on it the first thing Billy Preston was the fifth beatle he he was not just a musician i think that he helped them get this whole thing over the finish line and and the other thing that i really took away was that they they just didn't seem the same without the hand of Brian Epstein mm. on
0: them going to be a lot of overlap between you and me jackson so why don't we give oh, right? why don't we give neil a shot here for okay. at least 5 to 1
3: yeah i, I some of mine i've already i've already mentioned as i said there's a, there's a little bit of crossover between highlights and then uh, takeaways well i mm-hmm. man both about the get back documentary itself and and the beatles so i've mixed the two things together so the first takeaway is that peter jackson's done a great job on this and the whole thing just oozes quality and i saw a little bit of criticism about the fact that it was nine hours long i couldn't deal with that more i was like I found the whole experience of watching it really calming mm-hmm. and, and soothing in some in some way. I don't know if it's the Twickenham Studios and like there was lights they had behind, but I just found the whole program, whatever you want to call it, documentary, really immersive and like just it just the quality of like the actual film as well. You know, like the yeah. scene where you, you see the it's just the man brushing the floor and everything. It just looked like it could just be from like. A, proper hollywood films the actual quality of it's great so that was my first one oh number five yeah. number four would be what i said um earlier on was it was a real shame that they didn't actually achieve the premise that they out to you know record this album in 14 days uh, sorry write and record write it rehearse it and then record it in front of um a live um audience my third thing was, again, I mentioned it earlier, seeing the Beatles as a, a real unit, as a true band, especially mm. on those Hamburg covers, and actually seeing how just naturally they just could play together. is exactly what you just said, really, about like, they just come in, they switch on, they can do it. There's no warming up. They're just oozing talent, plus they like the consummate professionals, even though they can't make a decision. So there's that as well. Oh, the other thing was, the, the opening sequence before you actually see them, the bit that's a bit more documentary that just tells us what happens from when they very yeah. f- like the 57 to the 68, 50s. basically. Yeah, yeah, that I think was just it. Just shows how in such a short amount of time what the Beatles did and how they grew and how much they changed, and that is where I get my real, real respect from. The Beatles is like. That just level of growth and development, and just how much they packed in in what really was like a seven year career when it comes to albums. Right. I mean, we do podcasts talking about you know bands have been on for, for decades. Uh, we probably, let's be honest, haven't done as much different stuff in two, three, or four decades as the Beatles did in seven years. And then my last takeaway from it is Paul McCartney. I didn't, I know this is only a snapshot of one time in their career and doesn't give us. The whole picture of you know their whole career, but I wasn't aware of just what a drive and force he was in that band. And I actually thought throughout it, he's actually being really reasonable and trying to give other people their space to do mm-hmm. things. But just how unbelievably creatively prolific he is, and also one thing I really came home with McCartney's one I love his voice. And I love the tone of his voice, not his speaking voice, his um, singing voice. And, you know, people often have that discussion, are you a a Paul or are you a John? Um, Watching that has definitely put me in the um, Paul McCartney camp. And I have never, ever, ever owned a Beatles album or anything, right? I never had any interest in it. Yesterday, when I was in the record shop, mm. um, I ended up actually buying a Depeche book album, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Fair but much. I did have it in my hand for a while. The Abbey Road album. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to buy it. And I never, but I'm going to buy it next time. But I've never even contemplated it before. So it has actually sort of really ignited my interest in the Beatles, and especially that that latter part of the Beatles from, say, you know, 66 onwards. And I think in the next few weeks, I'm going to buy my first ever bill's album
0: good for you man that's, that's awesome yeah that's cool you know and, and i'm like you i never had abbey road until i moved 40 meters from abbey road and it was its 50th anniversary i'm like all right well yeah i guess maybe now i should go ahead and pick one up but no you're right about paul mccartney actually paul still has a house just north of the lord's cricket ground which is maybe a 10 minute walk from abbey road studios he bought it in 1965 for uh 40, 000 pounds uh, I think it's close to forty million dollars now. Maybe I did. I did take a stroll by there. I walked the dog by there. Tried to make sure he did not pee on on on, on his uh, on his door. Maybe his neighbors. But I'm like, no, that's Paul's. Don't do that, dog. Anyway, all right. So uh, number five for me. I just want to do a rundown on all the guys. One uh, for five. Ringo is still underrated. Yes, he was apathetic and kind of tired in this, but he was always spot on. Uh, the rhythm was always top notch on every take. Paul was in charge. John was a better guitar player than I ever gave him credit for. He, as a guitar player and playing lead, he was really good, and I didn't realize that. George was over it at this point. He's like, I don't really need to do this anymore. And Yoko still sucks. I always thought Yoko got a bad, bad by the press. They weren't really fair to her, but she still sucks. Number four was, they're great musicians who would jam and figure things out together. And a lot of these are similar years. But we saw everybody behind the drums at some point. We saw everybody on the piano at some point. They would pass around the guitar. If Paul was on piano, sometimes someone would play bass. They would all play that pedal steel slide a little bit. And it was just cool to see them do jams of stuff and maybe none of it made to record, but but still, this is how the organic stuff happens. You just get together and jam, and, and that's the way it comes together. So that was four for me. Three was kind of similar to yours. I never realized losing Brian Epstein was such a dramatic thing for them, and you could tell there's no adult around, and, and they started to manage themselves. And, and we saw that they were maybe taking meetings with Alan Klein to see if he was going to do it, which in the '69 the Stones would have maybe recommended it by 72 or 73, they probably wouldn't have. But the thing is, yeah, maybe they can manage their business affairs, but they can't tell each other, you need to be here at nine. You need to be ready to work no later than 10. You need to leave the wife at home or in the control room. You know, there's no dad to tell them, you can't do this. You know, it's time to work. So it it really changed that. Number two for me was Billy Preston saved the day. Okay, they, they were struggling a little bit, Billy comes in, and now John's engaged, and now Paul doesn't have to play the piano on every other song, and George is psyched, you know, and, and he really saved the day, and, and I'm glad that he never played in Twickenham, because it was obvious that Twickenham was just not the place. You know, and they needed a different place. And when they got to Apple on Savile Row, it changed. It changed. And it just coincided with the fact that Billy was there. And then number f- number one for me was, yeah, they were breaking up. They had other things going on. But these guys had fun together in the studio. You know, even though they weren't best mates maybe anymore, they had grown apart. They're laughing. They're singing. You know, when they were doing... A silly version of the two of us, John and Paul, singing silly, or maybe singing between their teeth without you know. My daughter's cracking up at that. You know, like this is great. You know. These are the guys I love, you know, or they're they're reading the tabloids and they're singing the tabloid song or something like that. So they could, they had a sense of humor, but they also were self-deprecating. They could take the piss out of themselves just as well as they could, you know, anybody else, you know. So that just, to me, just shows it's too bad what happened. But it's natural because we're all married. We all know how hard it is to be married. And now you got to be married to three other guys who are all of a sudden incredibly rich and wealthy. Not to mention they're also married to women, you know. It's like, it's hard to manage all that. And the fact that, and of course, bands didn't stay together. If you were together more than 18 months, like, wow, you're a really successful band. In like 63, 64, nobody stayed together two or three years. So the fact that they were together more than 10 years, if you take them back to the Quarrymen, certainly even when they got Ringo, that's a decade. Nobody's... You know, nobody thought that would happen, and maybe it went on longer than maybe it should have, for a lot of different reasons. But the fact of the matter is, they were mates, they were friends, they have been through a lot of stuff just before them, and they still had a good sense of humor, still had a lot of fun together. Whereas the yeah, Eagles, that- the Eagles fucking hate each other, okay? They go on stage for two hours, they walk off separate buses, separate planes, and we don't even want Don Felder here. You know, like, he doesn't even get to come into the band anymore. Like, But, you know, those guys were friends.
2: Yeah. You talk about, like, the three other guys who nobody else on the face of the earth could. To, to know what you went through, I think that was definitely the bond that kept them together. That They were still, when they got back in there, they were still the, you know, the guys who were playing at the Cavern Club. And, you know, just enjoyed being around each other when the music was the main focus. I mean, other things were, were, starting to pull them away, but when they could concentrate on that, you could see, you could still, they were still having fun and they still enjoyed each other's company.
3: And I think it's good that even though, you know, that the band ends on poor terms and, you know, they split up and everything is that and it's from interviews I've seen since and everything is like, you know, before John Lennon dies, Paul McCartney and John Lennon have made the peace, and they actually are actually you know visit each other and are still friends. And he just talk about the old days. Uh, George and Bolton and Ringo, they all stay friends. So you know that relationship. This this documentary catches it at that time where maybe you know it's just starting to get a little bit shaky, but it's it's good to know that beyond this, yeah, it gets worse again. But then ultimately they all come back together, and they and they still end up friends, which is which is heartening.
2: Yeah, and, and the nice part, too, is they never put out a record without the four of them. It wasn't, you know, somebody left, and then the
3: rest of the Beatles put out a record,
2: or they didn't, you know, there was no, there was never a failed reunion tour or anything like that. It kind of just, it ended, and then that was it. And I did see a, a, a clip of a, of a deal with John and Yoko walking, I guess, through Central Park or something, mm-hmm. and it kind of hammered home his position like these guys were oh hey look they were playing basketball or something and he walks by this chain link fence hey I know you man hey what's going on man hey when are the Beatles getting back together <laughs> and just and the look on his face is like I, I that's not me anymore like I, I don't, I don't do that I'm trying to move but they would never let him right. I don't think ever really get past that not at that point in time not in the in the you know mid to late 70s whenever this took place so I think that for John that really kind of weighed on him a lot, you know, trying to make his own way in the world.
0: So overall, I mean, I sounds like we all really enjoyed it. And it, it, it sparked our greater appreciation of this band that, again, it's not like we dislike the Beatles, but it, it, it's kind of like, hey, you know, yes, I like the Beatles in that I like water, you know, but I, I'd, I'd rather have a Guinness than water. I think if it does that, especially for people our age. Now we're closer to 50 than you are, Neil, but I, I looked at the thing. It's like the majority of people who watched this documentary were 55 or older, which is kind of old, even though we're not that far away, you, you've got further to go. But Jackson, I've always skewed older on our musical tastes and, for this to give a new appreciation for the band that really started it all. And it obviously wouldn't just be for us. Hopefully it's for a lot of other people
2: out there as well. Yeah, and I think the the one thing that it really did for me is it it really hammered home. And I I, kind of always knew this in the back of my mind, but it wasn't just Lennon McCartney. Like, yes, they did the bulk of the heavy lifting as far as the songwriting, but the other two guys really served an important piece of the puzzle that they, they couldn't have just brought somebody else in mm-hmm. there's a great line from linda where she just kind of offhand, like when ringo shows up that day that after uh george leaves she just says oh everybody's more relaxed when ringo is here or something about that like i'm always relaxed like that was his deal like he just cooled everybody out he served a very important role they all did it was a band it wasn't just the two
3: guys or one guy or anything like that
0: yeah parting thoughts neil or, or final final
3: thoughts I think my final thoughts are are, 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 even though I approach this with a respect for the Beatles and a... I I, I don't know what the one word is for not minding the Beatles. (laughs) 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 Whatever the one word is, um, that sums that up. The one thing that was apparent to me as I was watching it and was afterwards is like, I can't think of any other band that I'm not a super fan of that I would give up nine hours of my time and stick with film footage like this and i think that is testament to the beatles and to seeing their creative process and them as individuals and their personalities and also the way in which this whole thing um, was put together so i'm not a big beatles fan but I tell you what, I don't think I'd watch nine hours of any other, of many other bands. So, right. And I think that's down to that unique, special nature of the Beatles, whether you're a big fan or not.
0: Well, maybe we can all get together and do all the Iron Maiden, you know, like the early years, part one and part two, and do all those things together. That we could do pretty easily, right? Well, why don't you tell all our fans out there uh, where they can find you? I know you've got a new Facebook page that looks really good. How how can they find Deflep Pod?
3: Um, so I'm on Twitter as at Deflep Pod. I'm on Facebook as Deflep Pod Neil. I've got, you're right, I've got a Facebook page, which is just Deflet Pod. And I've also tried again to get into Instagram, even though I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm on that as Deathletpod Neil as well. But well, to be honest, the easiest way and the way that I understand the most is Twitter. So Twitter's the best uh, at Deathletpod.
0: And well, what about, uh, can you give us any previews on episode 20 or 21, stuff coming up?
3: Yeah, so um, episode 20 is coming out uh, within the next week or so. That's on... Um, a song called Now, which is from Def Leppard's X album, which is routinely regarded as their worst album. So I'm not expecting many downloads for that one, but you know it is what it is. Uh, it's all part of it's all part of going through the, the catalog. So yeah, that's the that's the next episode up. So uh, I, I'll, I'll try my best to make it interesting, even for the people who hate the song.
0: Excellent. Well, hey, look, we can't thank you enough. We appreciate you being on, and you are welcome anytime, my friend.
3: Oh, I really appreciate you um, inviting me on again, and I was I was touched and had a little tear in my eye when I was listening to your last last episode, and you were doing your review review of the year. You were far far too kind, and uh, <laughs> as I said to you, I really enjoyed being on um, your podcast as well. So yeah, I'll I'll come on anytime. Fantastic.
2: Appreciate it. Thank you, Neil. <laughs>
0: Now that was a fun episode to do. Not only to be able to hang out with Jackson and Neil and have a great conversation, that we always do whenever we get together, but it was great to be able to review such an amazing piece of, of film, right? This documentary nearly nine hours long on a band that we weren't even that enamored with. And somehow we couldn't stop watching, and there's so many amazing parts to it, kind of showcasing all the inner workings of the biggest band that ever was and really ever will be. Think about all that was going on there. You know, they've been without their manager now for more than a year. They've got all the money they need, but they still need to continue to work and move forward artistically and financially. You got George Harrison starting to write great songs, even though he was always kind of Pushed to the back all those years. You got John dealing with problems with the media, problems in his personal life, drug problems. You got Paul trying to put a family together and lead the Beatles without any kind of management or leader present. Very interesting times. An amazing film. Peter Jackson and his crew did great work. Just a lot of fun to be with my friends, Jackson and Neil, talking about that. And we hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoy the show. If you haven't seen it on Disney+, Plus, I highly, highly, highly encourage it. As always, we want you to tell us. Did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Do we miss the point entirely? There's some big Beatles fans out there. Tell us what we're missing out on. You can tweet us and DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at action 72 and make sure you check out Neil deflet pod is a great podcast episode 20 has already come out as we're releasing this and you can check him out on Twitter at deflet pod and make sure you subscribe and download wherever you get your podcast be it Spotify, Amazon, Apple, we love good pods, great place to reach out and, and find new fans and other great podcasts and you can check out every past episode at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Next week, we're very excited. We have a special guest on, singer, songwriter, guitar player, Amanda Lehman, who you may have heard us talk about before, as she has played with Steve Hackett in his band. And when we did review of Steve's show at the London Palladium last fall, she was part of the opening five or six songs, the solo part of Steve's show. And she's got a new album out, Innocence and Illusion, which made my top records of 2021. She was kind enough to join me and Jackson for a talk about what it's like to tour and play with Steve, and we walked through the entire new album. Please come check that out. That'll be out on Thursday, January 27, 2022. Until then, rock and roll fans all over the world, be cool and stay safe.